On October 22, 1928, U.S. presidential candidate Herbert Hoover gave a campaign speech entitled Principles and Ideals of the United States Government. In it, the soon-to-be president-elect Hoover expressed his belief that America is based upon, quote, rugged individualism and self-reliance. As a self-made millionaire himself, he could speak out of his own experience. What that phrase did was encapsulate a philosophy that does indeed express much of the American ethos. We are a nation that somewhat prides itself in rugged individualism. From Horatio Alger's novel about rugged Dick, the young man who worked his way out of poverty, to James Fenimore Cooper's tales about Natty Bumpo, the adventurous frontiersman who conquered the West, the American vision of the good life has been significantly impacted by the ideal of an individual who sets out alone to make his own way in the world. And indeed, there is something ennobling about individual effort and overcoming obstacles to obtain lofty goals. However, individualism as a way of life leads to loneliness and emptiness. As creatures made in the image of our Trinitarian God, people are made for community. We are made, we're hardwired for connection. As the band Three Dog Night famously sang in 1969, one is the loneliest number you'll ever know. And the Bible underscores that. Life without community is filled with frustration and futility. That's the theme that is taken up by Ecclesiastes in the portion that we're going to study this morning. We've been working our way through this Old Testament book over the last many weeks, studying what is most likely the wisdom given by the Spirit of God to King Solomon. That's who we think probably wrote it. At least the book is based upon his life if he was not the actual author of it. But the book reflects real life in a fallen world. And last week, we looked at the end of chapter 3 and the first part of chapter 4, seeing how this author, who gives himself the name Koheleth in Hebrew, which simply means teacher or preacher, he acknowledges how injustice and oppression permeate the world. In a large part, he says, this is the result of envy and indifference being motivating factors in our attempts to get ahead in the world. Today, we're going to see from the following text, what the preacher has to say about how we should engage in life and work in this world. Specifically, we should engage in our lives and our work in cooperation with other people. Our text is, is Ecclesiastes chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. We're going to go down through the end of this chapter, which is verse 16. If you're using one of the Bibles that's provided for you, that's on page 555, 555. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. Follow along as I read aloud this portion of God's holy word. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? 
This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not easily broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's, in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Going it alone results in a life of futility. Because that's true, we need to learn how to live and work in cooperation with other people. This is what the preacher is teaching us in this section of his book. We see in verses 7 and 8 how he simply makes the statement that Going it alone in this world results in vanity and sorrow. He, he just tells us of an observation. Again, he's looking at life under the sun. He's looking at things as they really are without regard to God. What is life like? How do things work? And this is the observation that he makes. He says he sees a person who has no other. Literally, who has no second. No one to stand beside him. No one who is there with him. And that person, all his work and living is vanity. It's unhappy business. The point he's making is that working by yourself for yourself is self-defeating. If all you think about is yourself as you go through life, you are defeating the very purpose you're hoping to serve by focusing on yourself. Verse 8, he says, this one person has no other, either son or brother. And then he just tells us three things about him. There's no end to all his toil. His eyes are never satisfied with riches, no matter how rich he gets. And he's depriving, depriving himself of pleasure. Such a person has only himself as a frame of reference. He's not thinking of anyone else. He's not considering the impact of his actions on anyone else. He is living for himself, which ironically is ultimately self-defeating. It results in dissatisfaction. It results in endless toil. It results in missing out on legitimate pleasures that have been designed for us to experience. Furthermore, he goes on to teach us in this text that working by yourself, for yourself, is short-sighted. Middle of verse 8, he says, he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? He never thinks beyond himself, and so he's not inclined to stop and ask, why am I doing what I'm doing? Why do I live the way that I live? That's an easy trap to fall into, to get caught up in the routines and ruts of life, and you never stop and ask yourself, why? 
you get engaged in the pressures of life, the demands of life. And before long, you discover that your work, your activities become more and more consuming. And because you didn't start with the purpose and end in mind, or else you lost sight of the purpose and end for which you did start, you find yourself subtly, effectively swept away. And you never pause to ask, why am I living like this? Why am I doing this? For whom am I working and depriving myself of pleasure? In an article called The Company Man, written by Ellen Goodman, who was an associate editor for the Boston Globe, she tells the story of a man named Phil, who is very much like this man in Ephesians chapter 4. Phil died at age 51 at precisely 3 a.m. on Sunday morning, which ironically was his day off. He was a vice president for a very prestigious company, worked six days a week, often until 9 o'clock at night. His, his obituary said that he died of a coronary thrombosis, but his friends and his family knew that that wasn't really the case, that he had simply worked himself to death. Ellen Goodman writes this about Phil. He is survived by his wife, Helen, 48 years old, a good woman of no particular marketable skills who worked in an office before marrying and mothering. She had, according to her daughter, given up on trying to compete with his work years ago when the children were small. A company friend came to her and said, I know how much you will miss him. And she said, I already have. He got caught up in life. He was never satisfied. His only frame of reference was himself and his work. And he never stopped and asked himself, why am I doing this? And in the process, not only worked himself to death, but long before his death, lost his family. Living, working like this is vanity and unhappy business, the text says. Yet, as we've previously seen in this book, and we will see again before we come to the end of Ecclesiastes, work can be pleasurable. You can find joy and satisfaction in work. But in order to do that, you're going to have to stop and ask yourself this question that the workaholic never wants to ask himself, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? Now, brothers and sisters, those of us who who know Jesus Christ, who've been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, when we ask this question, the Bible guides us into what our answer should be. Why are we doing what we do? Our answer should be for the glory of God. We should be guided by something far greater than ourselves, something transcendent beyond our few years on this earth. Something that has been revealed to us as we've come to be connected to our Creator through the life and death and resurrection of His Son. It's only as we pursue God's greatest glory in this world that we will come to experience our greatest possible pleasure in this world. Because in His wisdom, God has wed his glory to our joy. And when we experience the pursuit of his glory 
we will be on the pathway of finding our greatest possible joy in Him. This is exactly what our Baptist catechism teaches us in the very first question. When the question is asked, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is given. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's one thing, not two. It's two sides of one coin. When you pursue the glory of God, you are pursuing your greatest capacity to have joy in this world which comes only in and through God. So if you are seeking to glorify God, then you will seek inevitably not to live for yourself, but to live for the good of others. To, to seek the welfare of His creatures, particularly to live for the welfare of your brothers and sisters who share your faith in Jesus Christ. Going it alone results in a life of futility because it always leads to vanity, to emptiness, and to sorrow. But by contrast, the preacher goes on to say in the next section of our text that living in community provides great blessing. In verses 9 through 12, we learn about the value of having a second of having a companion, living in com community with other people. Verse 9, he simply states the principle. Two are better than one. When it comes to money and wealth, more is not always better. As he wrote in verse 6 that we didn't read this morning, but we looked at last week. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. But when it comes to relationships, more is better. Verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Two, working in cooperation, accomplish more. They can share the fruits of their efforts, thereby spreading the joy. After establishing that principle and just stating it, he then gives three examples to support it, to illustrate it. The first comes from verse 10, when you fall. When a person falls, if you've ever fallen and injured yourself and you've been unable to get up and get help, you know how valuable having someone nearby who cares for you can be. If you've broken a leg or a foot or twisted your ankle and you just need to get somewhere to get help, if you're left to yourself, it can be difficult. If there's someone you can call, if there's someone with you, it's not as difficult. Well, that's true not in just the physical realm of our lives, but it's also true spiritually. If you fall into a season of depression or doubt, or you fall into sin, what a great blessing it is to have someone in your life who loves you and cares for you that you can trust to help you through it, to help pick you up, to help show you back on the right path, to pray for you, to pray with you, to remind you of truth, to, to set scripture before you that perhaps you've lost sight of. It's a great benefit to have people in your life who are willing to know you, willing to love you and care for you and help you along your spiritual journey. The second example he gives is in verse 11. When you need warmth, he says, again, if two lie together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm 
alone in the ancient Near East, travel, especially during winter, could be perilous. That's particularly true at nighttime when the sun would go down and the temperatures would go down. And if you were by yourself, that peril was compounded because you were relying only on yourself to keep warm. But if you had a traveling companion, then you could lie back to back and your body heat, rather than dissipating, would be conserved. That's the image that he has in mind. But again, this is true, not just in the physical realm, but also in the spiritual realm. If your faith is wavering, if your own devotion to Jesus Christ is growing cold, how wonderful it is to have a friend, to have a companion who is able to come beside you, pray for you, remind you of things, and who through his own or her own example sets before you an illustration of what it looks like to continue to follow after Christ and love Him and know His love even in the midst of difficulty. The third example is found in verse 12. Two are better than one when you're attacked. Though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A solitary person is a much easier mark for a criminal. Much more likely candidate for being attacked than two or more people are. And when you are attacked, it's great to know that you have someone who's got your back. So that you can give yourself and your energies to what's in front of you, knowing that you're not going to be sucker punched from behind. The wise man acknowledges that and uses, us, uses this as an example for us to... Show us how two indeed are better than one. We recognize the benefits of community and companionship every time we use the buddy system. If you've ever gone to the beach with young people or children, you make sure they don't go off by themselves, right? They need a buddy. If you've ever taken young people on a hike out in the wilderness, they need a buddy. They stay together, right? If you go to the mall or park, you want your children to have a little freedom, you make sure they stay together so that they can keep up with one another. What is that? That is just an inevitable sense that we have because we're created in God's image about the wisdom and goodness, the benefit of companionship. God created us for friendship. He created us to live in community, in fellowship with others. We see this very thing at the beginning of creation when in the Garden of Eden, God created Adam. You remember what he said? Our Trinitarian God, Father, Son, Spirit, said, let us make man in our image. And then after he created Adam and everything else that had come into existence, he said it's not good that man should be alone. And he created woman to be his wife, to be his companion. Because too are better than one. When Jesus first sent his disciples out into the world after he had taught them about the kingdom of God and that he was the king who's now on earth, who's come to establish God's kingdom and reconcile people to God, and he sent them out with this good news. You remember how he sent them out? Two by two. Why? Because two is better than one. Brothers and sisters, Friends, 
We were created to live in community. No man is an island unto himself. And if you try to live as if you are an island, your life is going to be filled with vanity and unhappy business. Well, Coleth sums up this section at the end of verse 12 with a proverb. He says, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. If you have a, a rope that only has one strand, it's pretty strong. If you have two strands, it's a little stronger. But if you have three strands that are woven together, it becomes exponentially stronger. And his point in using that illustration is that there is strength in unified numbers that simply does not exist in isolation. When working together with the same purpose, more people increase strength of the effort. And that's true in every area of life. It's particularly true in the church. Our God, Father, Son, and Spirit work together in perfect harmony to bring about the salvation of His people and the creation of the church. His people are reconciled to God. They are reconciled to Him according to the purpose of the Father. According to the work, the life, death, and resurrection of the Son. According to the ministry, the convicting and converting ministry of the Spirit. And just as Father, Son, Spirit work together in our salvation, when they save a person, when we are saved by our triune God, we are saved so that we might then live in community, in harmony with other believers. That's the purpose of the church. The Christian life is a community project. Did you hear what Jared read earlier? Let me just highlight a couple of the places in that passage that Pastor Jared read from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul writes there, Of the church, he says, Just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we're all made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. And then he goes on and he says, For if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. You see, you, you will be converted. The only way you'll be converted is individually. Children, you will not be made right with God because mom or dad is right with God. You must come to trust Jesus Christ individually. Husbands, wives, you're not going to get in on the good graces of your spouse. You must individually deal with God and individually trust Jesus Christ as Lord in order to be reconciled to God. But when Jesus saves a person individually, He does not call that person to follow Him individually. He calls that person to follow Him together with others who have been called to be reconciled to God. The Scripture is very clear. You cannot manage your own sanctification alone. Christian, you cannot manage your discipleship, your spiritual life 
alone. You need help. You need people in your life who know you, who care enough about you to encourage you along the path to continue growing, to continue being conformed more and more to the image of Jesus. It takes a church to raise a Christian. Are you experiencing that? Can you honestly say that, that your life is being helped and shaped by God through the ministry, through the assistance of brothers and sisters whom He has placed in your life? Do you know anything about what it means to live in such vital relationship with other believers such that you have people you can count on to pick you up when you fall? That you can count on to call and know that they will help you when your spiritual flame has waned and grown cold? That you can count on to have your back when you're in the midst of a battle? Are you that kind of friend for anybody? Can you say, yes, I've made myself vulnerable and available to others in this way so that together we might grow in the grace of Jesus Christ? Maybe you're here this morning and you're feeling pretty cut off and isolated from others. Maybe you're feeling friendless, unknown. Proverbs 8.24 says, there's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And it's referring to Jesus Christ. He's the greatest of all friends. To his disciples one time he said, I've not called you my servants. I've called you my friends. When he was on earth, some of his critics, religious critics, castigated him because he associated with sinners. And they said, this man's a friend of sinners. Praise God that he is. Because what that means is that he is willing and able to be a friend to every one of us in this room. Have you ever come to know Christ that way? Have you ever come to, to have Christ in your life in such a way that through faith in him, you can be assured based upon the word of God that you are now entered into friendship with Him? If not, then trust Him now. Believe Him now. Call on Him now. Take Him at His Word, which teaches us that He is willing and able to save all who come to Him by faith. Two are better than one. There's value in community. The preacher teaches us this truth and he wants us to know that because going it alone in the world results in a life of futility, we must learn to live and work in cooperation with others. But then he concludes this section of the text we're looking at this morning with a cryptic tale. We might call it a cautionary tale. A tale, a story that warns us and reminds us that even our best efforts at cooperation or all of our accomplishments that we might attain will, along with everything else in this world, ultimately be forgotten. So even when you live in community, when you are a friend and you have a friend, and you encourage one another to live as God's called us to live, that at the end of the day, we are still dependent upon God's grace. We are here 
for just a vapor of time and that there's more to this world than this world. Even successful accomplishments are not ultimately going to last. That's what he teaches us in verses 13 through 16. He contrasts, he gives us a contrast that highlights the importance of living in, in community. In verse 13 he says, Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. A poor youth who is wise, who listens to counsel, is better than an old and foolish king. The king, though elderly and therefore potentially wiser simply because he has more experience, he's lived longer than the young person has, because he's cut himself off from counselors, has become foolish. He's unwilling to take advice. He's begun to live in isolation the older that he gets. You know, we normally think that with age comes wisdom. Generally, that's true. But brother, brothers and sisters, it is possible. The older you get, the more isolated you could become. In doing so, you cut yourself off from the very means that God has ordained for your spiritual health and welfare. The means of fellowship. The means of friendship. Companionship community through wisdom a poor imprisoned youth can be raised to rule as king that's verse 14 it's probably the meaning of what the preacher writes in that verse the pronoun he in verse 14 there's some question as to whether it refers back to the king who's old and foolish or to the youth if we take it to mean the youth then he's referring to the reality that the young person can go from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. He, the, the wise yet poor youth, can go on to lead many people. Verse 16 says, there was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet he tells us at the end of verse 16, even this king who grew up from poverty and imprisonment to a place of power and authority that was respected such that he led many people. Even this king will ultimately be forgotten. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and striving after wind. You know, it may be that here the author is referring back to thinking of Joseph. Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his brothers and wound up in Egypt, and then put in prison in Egypt and was released from prison to become a mighty ruler in Egypt. And through his wisdom, Egypt was blessed and the nations surrounding Egypt were blessed because there were seven years of hard famine that Joseph, in his wisdom given from God, was able to prepare them to endure. A great leader, great ruler. A man hailed, not just by the people of God, but by people who did not even know or care about his God. And yet we read in Exodus 1.8 that there was a day when there arose a king in Egypt who didn't know Joseph, didn't care about Joseph, had forgotten Joseph. With this story, the preacher's warning us that while it is indeed foolish to try to go it alone in this world, even when we seek to live wisely in community with others, this world is fallen. 
And we will never attain that which our hearts ultimately long for in this world alone. We were made for something greater. We were made for another world. One day, all of our accomplishments will be forgotten. Psalm 68 verse 6 says that the Lord settles the solitary in homes. He brings those living in isolation into a family. That's exactly what happens whenever God comes to a person and reveals to that person Jesus Christ is Lord. To trust in Christ is to become not only His follower and to know Him not only as your Savior, it is to be adopted into His very family. To trust in Christ is to have Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, as your older brother. He is, as Paul puts it in Romans 8, 29, the firstborn among many brethren. Can you conceive of that? Having the Lord of the universe as your older brother? If you've been living in isolation, cut off from true friendship and companionship, hear Jesus Christ calling you today to turn away from that path, turn away from your sin, admit your folly, and bow to Him as Lord. Receive Him as Lord and come to be united to Him through faith. Brothers and sisters, we must never diminish the communion that we have together as disciples of Christ. Because we belong to Jesus Christ, we belong to one another. We need each other and we are needed by each other. So commit yourself to living this way. Find someone who needs companionship and open up your life and offer yourself to serve them in this way, to assist them along their journey. Learn to become a true friend. Just as Jesus Christ has befriended us as we've turned away from the path of sin and isolation to acknowledge Him as Lord. Because in doing so, in doing so, we put on display the truth and the power of this gospel, this good news that reconciles individuals to our Creator through faith in Christ and establishes us together as a family under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for giving us Your Word. We thank You for this text from Ecclesiastes where you teach us the folly of trying to make it through this world on our own, and yet we have to confess so often it is a temptation to cut ourselves off from others, to just try to muscle our way through. God, deliver us from that. Help us to see ourselves as we are and to not run away from our need, but to be willing to offer up ourselves in humility to Jesus Christ as Lord and therefore through Christ to one another in helping and serving each other along this journey. I pray for people who came in today who are strangers to you and your grace. Would you not by your word and spirit speak to them and open up their understanding and reveal Christ in them today that they might know your grace and forgiveness, that they might be adopted into your family through the Lord Jesus. For we pray in His name. Amen.